You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Payments Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, James Tiadarini, and I'm joined here today by Louis Carbonier. Thank you for coming in today in person. Louis, great to meet you. Hi, James. Great to be here. Thanks for uh, welcoming me. So I think I'm, I'm super excited about our conversation today. I think it's um, a topic that a lot of people will be super interested in. So, so let's dive straight in. Louis, who are you? What do you do? Talk to us a little bit about yourself. So I'm 39, French national, <laughs> one kid who's exactly the same age as uh, our venture, Pocoder. So I'm one of the co-founders at Pocoder. Uh, we started out in 2018. And what we do is that we help merchants sell more by offering better payment terms to their professional customers. So one way to, to see it in, in, in a nutshell is that we're a BNPL solution for B2B. Perfect. Thank you. And I think that's kind of why I was excited, right? People hear the letters BNPL and the kind of the big pink clanas of the world pop up, kind of the afterpays. And I think a lot of people think about this in in the terms of B2C, right? And, you know, there's obviously been a lot of discussion about what that means for consumers. But you just talked there about kind of merchants and and business transactions. So I suppose we're talking here about B2B, BNPL, if that's not yeah. too many letters. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, so to avoid ambiguity in this case, it's when it's businesses purchasing online, yeah. and how can businesses benefit from payment terms? And in fact, when you just rewind a little bit, BNPL in B2B trade has been there forever. Mm. So the traditional way of purchasing and procuring in B2B is with what was called in the good old days trade credits or, or sometimes credit terms. And that has been an ongoing practice for decades, if not centuries. And the irony and why you know BNPL comes in today is that e-commerce started off on the consumer side. So there's a lot of infrastructure that has emerged, like you know, the Shopify's, Kalna's, Tribe, Currency Cloud yeah. of this world that provide the you know, the UX that we're used to in our individual lives. But now B2B commerce is also moving online. Yeah. And that's the big new thing. So if you, and that has been further accelerated by COVID, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, so during the COVID period, the online sales have surpassed the physical sales in B2B for the first time in history. And so now they account for a good 20% of the whole B2B trade. And B2B e-commerce is going to become actually much larger according to the projections than B2C e-commerce. And the whole, you know, the crux of the issue and the reason why Pocodo exists is how do I offer payment terms to my customers online? Yeah. And my professional customers expect payment terms because that's how they've shopped traditionally so it's bringing that you know we talk about it a lot right but bringing that traditional world right up to date with a with a technology layer a technological technological solution behind that is that kind of the way that you would position it yeah that's absolutely uh, absolutely right and uh, why it's difficult and why it's only <laughs> coming uh, coming to us now is that actually to sell on payment terms you actually need to do a few things right mm. And in B2B, the exposures are much higher. So the stakes are pretty high if you mm. if you get it wrong. 
So traditionally, what companies were doing is like, you need to check the credit worthiness of your counterpart. Mm -hmm. So that's why you have an industry called credit bureaus with the likes of Experian, DNB, Credit Safe, and so on. That's step one. Step two is you need a collections team. Mm -hmm. um, one invoice out of two in Europe is paid late. Wow. Yeah. Is that so right? One out of two is paid late. 54%, if I'm not mistaken. And that creates an industry in your back office of finance people, you know, dunning, chasing, collecting late invoices. Then you have another issue, which is what happens when, despite all your collections, the invoice is still unpaid. Yeah. So, so who takes the bad debt? So there's another industry called credit insurance, and most businesses, wholesalers, would have you know, a credit insurance sitting behind. And then you have a, a, a last industry, <laughs> which is the you know, invoice financing or factoring industry. So when you've sold to someone on credit terms mm -hmm. and you actually need the cash now, well, is there someone willing to advance that cash yeah. so that you're not facing the liquidity strain? So it's all those underlying building blocks, which are multi-billion industries yeah. in their own right, and legacy B2B products that we're digitizing, bringing online with a real-time experience. So our merchants receive you know, sub-second answers yeah. from Hokodo as to whether this buyer coming to their website is eligible or not for payment terms. And do you think that's a kind of, um, I suppose, a recurring trend across I want to say fintech as a whole, right? But taking that experience that you have as a consumer, you know, and we're so used to kind of one click checkout, kind of like all of those kind of B2C when you're going and buying something online. Do you think those expectations are being brought into the B2B world that it should be as easy to trade with your business partners as it is to buy something from Amazon or yes. any other marketplace that's out there? We're not pitching Amazon, but yes, absolutely. This, uh, and to be honest, Amazon kind of set a benchmark for all the others to follow. And this kind of consumerization and expectation that we have, that in our professional lives, we won't have to put up with nasty blue screens and uh, clunky processes, that's just becoming a reality today. There was a very interesting uh, survey last year from McKinsey that shows that 73% of the decision makers in B2B are actually millennials. Yeah. So these wow. people, <laughs> you know, are used to mobile, to you know, a, a nice UX essentially, and they just won't won't go through the old the, the fax machines, yeah. the uh, yeah, the old ways of working. That's super interesting. You've got some great stats today, like the fifty four percent, the kind of seventy four percent of millennials. And again, we sort of touched on it a little bit there, but something that we're seeing a lot of, and I know we've talked about this in the past, is kind of that real advent of, and again, kind of almost hesitate to use the word digital now because everything's digital, but online kind of B2B marketplaces, again, kind of mirroring what we see in our B2C lives. I assume kind of with everything you've talked about, that's something that's been a focus of yours or that's something you're seeing a lot of in terms of growth? Yeah, and that's actually what initially sparked the, the idea behind Hokodo. That feeling that a lot of the you know, good old B2B businesses were actually migrating online and that there was a very powerful new business model emerging, which was, so you still have regular merchants, but a lot of marketplaces are, are coming that are literally dis disrupting entire industries. 
So it's hard to, so that's a stat that's really hard to get. <laughs> yeah. You know, as a rule of thumb, you have 25% of e-commerce that's made of B2B marketplaces. Wow. And that's the proportion that's really growing the fastest. And for us, when you look at the, you know, the income, uh, sorry, the businesses that we have in our portfolio, mm. the likes of Anchor uh, Store, Roozer, Hector in the UK, Yardling, Tractor, these are all marketplaces. Yeah. These are, and um, they come to us because they want to sell online, offer the most differentiated purchasing experience, mm. and you know, just have the stand out by being easy to do business with. And these are literally people for, for whom it makes sense to look at the most effective B2B payment methods. And that's such a great phrase that you use there. And it's, I think if anyone that works, has worked with me in the past knows it's a phrase I've used a lot. How can we make it as easy as possible to do business? And these are sometimes, and I don't mean to offend anyone, not the most sexy of industries, right? You're talking about supply chain. You're talking about agriculture. You're talking about industry. And typically, they might have been seen as murky is probably the wrong world, but a bit opaque in terms of, payment terms in terms of how you actually do that business but the volume sizes i'm assuming you see in terms of average transaction size there's got to be that trust and that ease there yeah and that's something that it sounds like you guys are kind of really seeing and really trying to solve for yeah uh, absolutely the when you think of what's the most critical thing that the marketplace can bring to their customers it's going to be convenience mm. more choice and trust mm. And the cornerstone of trust is usually the payments. Yeah, of course. And if you manage to get that right, then you you literally you know leapfrog your competition. Yeah. And something that would be obviously remiss of me not to talk about being in a building that has currency on the front of it. Yeah. You know, cross border is obviously a huge element of this, right? And I'd be interested to see, you know, talk about kind of maybe what you're you're seeing now. I think one of the world's worst terms that gets thrown around is that embedded finance term. But again, making it easy to do cross-border transactions. What have you seen, I suppose, previously, the old world, and kind of where are you seeing things move? That's an, that's an excellent <laughs> question. So as a business, we ended up internationalizing much faster than we thought we would. And the reason being that our, you know, our customers, the merchants that we serve, they're much more international than we expected in the first place. So in B2B, as soon as we our clients reach like 50 million pounds turnover, there's a very good chance in B2B that they'll be exporting and selling to Western Europe, to the US, and yeah. so on. So initially we were thinking of like you know, stick to your knitting, yeah, yeah, yeah. focus <laughs> on your full geography, hit your product market fit. But we realized that for these customers, being able to offer payment terms to all their buyers, wherever they are, was absolutely, that was the definition of product market fit. And it's super hard to assess the credit worthiness of a client in China. Of It's extremely tough to crack the regulatory uh, discrepancies between, like, to, to take a basic example, lending is unregulated in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is regulated in France and Germany. The rules of insurance are also super com- uh, complicated, and these are frictions that businesses face day in day out. So, creating the platform that you know abstracts mm. all this underlying complexity and allows businesses to just focus on their product 
and export when they need to. That's totally part of the remit. And obviously for us, it places a massive burden in terms of product roadmap. Mm -hmm. So right now we're present in, in six countries, like the UK, Germany, France, Benelux, Spain. But every country is a massive spot. It's like three or four months to open the yeah. country. And taking, um, taking on buyers in Italy, that's not a small feat. Like the, the data landscape is different. The rules of you know, for going into insolvency are different. Collections in Italy are very different from collections in Germany. Yeah. In Germany, people tend to pay on time. <laughs> not a stereotype. That not is. A, yeah. Not a stereotype at all, but let's take France much less so than in Germany. So there's um, dealing with that complexity actually creates massive barriers mm -hmm. to trade. And if you can remove that uh, that friction, you've actually created a lot of value for the merchants. And that's why internationalization is, is crucial. And you know, ha having this plus the FX layer yeah. is ultimately the it's it's that thing about standardization as well, right? Making it sure and it's exactly as you said, kind of does a, a buyer or a seller in Germany have the same experience if they're buying or selling to Italy or as they would to a you know a domestic um, provider or partner. It's one of the things, you know, the, the analogy is always that swan, right? Like it's serene on the top, but there's so much going on underneath the surface to try and make that look serene and to abstract that away. If you think of what merchants have to do today to offer payment terms in the UK and in Germany, for instance, like in the UK, the data providers are going to be the likes of Credit Safe, Experian. Uh, whereas in Germany, you're going to be running with Graden or uh, Credit Reform. But that means concretely, if you're a business sitting in England exporting into Germany, then you're like, oh, who can, which of my German clients deserve payment terms? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then you realize, oh, oops, now I need to create that integration with credit reform. And by the way, the collections agency I was using in the UK doesn't work in Germany. So, so the, the frontiers are, are still huge barriers. And when you have businesses like Hokodo or Currency mm -hmm. Cloud creating the, you know, the layer of API that allows you to smoothly sail and export your, you know, your merchandise. That's a massive advance. It's allowing those businesses to operate globally whilst feeling local, right? Everything feels domestic and it feels yeah. local because it feels easy. Hopefully, you know, yeah. and I think I say the word hopefully with a lot of <laughs> a lot of kind of weight on it because there's there's more to do in every case, but. And, and there's a, an element also of uh, democratizing mm -hmm. what used to be complex products. So if you think today of the you know the letters of credit, credit insurance, supply chain finance, which were the incumbent products uh, before before we came in, these were products that could only really be accessed by large corporates mm -hmm. with you know structured finance uh, finance teams, and. B2B trade fundamentally is pretty uh, pretty unfair. Yeah. It's a reflection <laughs> of the balance yeah. of power. So if you're a large business and you see, you're going to be procuring on payment terms, no question about yeah. it. But let's let's imagine you're a, you know you're a, you're a tiny business when you buy you know you're going to be asked for upfront payments. Yeah, yeah. And when if you're a farmer selling to a food processor, the food processor is going to buy from you on payment terms. Yeah. So you're crunched at both ends. And with a solution like Pocudo, 
you're actually breaching that liquidity yeah. gap, both for the seller and the buyer, and putting them on an equal footing that makes it fair, transparent, accessible to everyone. And cash flow is the killer, right? Yeah. And that's the, that's the problem for those yeah. small businesses stuck in the middle. Cash flow is the killer. It's funny you talk about that democratization because I still remember getting a contract from Amazon once mm. and it was PDF and I said, I need to make some changes. No, no, it's deliberately PDF. You can't make any changes yeah. to this. Like, it's like, oh, okay, yeah. fair enough. I'll accept your terms. Yeah, 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 fair enough. I won't scribble on your PDF. Um, and so we kind of talked about, you know, some super interesting pieces around international, around democratization. But everything's changing, right? We see, you know, probably as we were talking about earlier, kind of what you see three months ago isn't what you're going to see in three months' time. So asking you to slightly gaze into your crystal ball a little bit, when you look at kind of B2B trade maybe as a whole or kind of think yeah. about maybe some, some sub-segments, what do you see as the big changes in the next kind of maybe say three to five years that, that people who are, you know, typically working for businesses or have those kind of powers that will be listening to the podcast can look out for? Yeah. So let's take a crystal ball for a, for a minute. So, you know, that whole scaffolding that emerged around B2C commerce, like the Shopify's mm. of this world, the Stripes of this world, the Karnas that are facilitating, you know, e-commerce as we know it day in, day out. I think that this, this whole infrastructure, let's call it trade infrastructure, is going to be replicated in B2B, and it's likely that they will be different players mm. from the other ones because the B2B stack and the workflows are totally different. So there's not so much synergy for a Stripe or, or a Klarna to go into B2B payments. So, you know, the credit assessment, the fraud mm. detection, the collections processes, the definitions of defaults, the data that you harvest, all these are a bit different. Mm. So if I were to take an analogy... If you look at the banking sector, you have some retail banks, you have some corporate banks, some business banks, and usually these are three separate divisions with very little synergies between, between them. Of course, you can put them under one umbrella, yeah. the universal <laughs> yeah. bank, but even when you look at the universal bank, you have a different DNA and yeah. different people and operations. Different culture to a certain extent yeah, to a lot of different places. places. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The M&A banker is not going to be the the guy running a branch around the corner. No, no. Yeah. So, so I think that's, uh, that's going to happen, and B2B commerce will keep moving online more and more. So some things that we didn't see three years ago is large purchases happening online. Yeah. So more and more, especially with COVID, people have realized that they could actually purchase complex mm. uh, you know, machines or complex goods Totally online. So we see transactions of 50, 100K mm-hmm. happening online, which is uh, relatively, uh, relatively new. And then what I would uh, you know, see as a big trend is that embedded finance, yeah. and we're part of this embedded finance movement, really taking over some of these um, you know, traditional financial products and supporting the expansion of B2B uh, e-commerce. So products like, you know, factoring, leasing, letters of, of credit are all being gradually displaced with digital equivalents that are sold at the point of need, at the point of sale, don't need a paper application. Yeah. So, so this is a, a big, uh, big trend. 
And then I, I would expect also some kind of consolidation to happen. Yeah. In the B, BNPL world of B2C, you kind of have giants emerging like Affirm, mm -hmm. Klarna, Afterpay, which are kind of regional giants. And I think we're going to have this in, in FX, we're going to have this yeah. in, in B2B, BNPL. Um, we're going to see this around uh, all the logistics and freights as well. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you have some large multinational merchants that need multinational solutions. They don't want to do 50 integrations. So you'll have some dominating players powering this ecosystem. And then a few local, of course, you can always have a local champion. Yeah. <laughs> having a strong foothold in Spain, and that's totally fine. But I, I don't see room for, you know, 10, 10 global leaders, I think it's going to be like a handful. I think it's super interesting reflecting on a couple of things you, you said there. I mean, I think the thing about large purchases in B2B becoming more normal online, one of the things that kind of struck me just then was like, even if you think five years ago, as a consumer, buying a car online would have been unthinkable. Like, yeah. whereas now you see kind of the big lorries with kind of the kazoo branding or whoever, or through Tesla, people are spending fifty to 100,000 online on on a car because they kind of know what they're going to get. The package looks good. They can get approved for finance if they need to be. So it kind of logically makes sense. And as you say, we always see it that, you know, those B2B elements kind of following 18 months, three years behind. And I, I think what you said as well about kind of some of maybe the more unexpected players in the market that might pop up are really interesting. I know someone who I think listens to this, but might be a bit awkward if he doesn't. But I was chatting to a chap called Michael, who is the SVP of payments at Salesforce. Yeah. And actually, you wouldn't think about Salesforce as someone who would potentially go into this world. But actually, you think about the kind of um, sort of domineering hold they have on information within business. Actually, will we see them start to, to kind of come out as a, a major player in this industry? Uh, absolutely. And that, you know, to me, that's totally part of the embedded journey. And um, if you think of uh, you know, how you can connect a, a CRM mm. to payment services, that's actually pretty obvious. So some, the way some of our clients, and we only discovered it afterwards because they integrate an API, the way some of our clients use our service is they have their telesales using their CRM, mm. selling to clients and looking on their CRM, which of their clients are eligible for payment yeah, terms. Interesting. And they use that to close deals instantly. And yeah. Because, you know, all else being equal, when you have the same product as your, as your competitor, one way to sell is to say, you know what, I'm going to give you 60-day payment terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's super interesting. So, so I think, you know, I think that, that embedded finance piece, as yeah. you say, is just huge. And I think it is a bit of a catch-all term, but, it, but there's a reason for that, right? Because I think it will become kind of... And we're just scratching the surface like some of these applications that, you know, if someone had told us 10 years ago, you know, CRMs are going to be an, an obvious uh, embedding... Um, points for for financial services we would have probably been a bit skeptical but and, and i think you know the the, the joy of, of my job you know so i look after the, the grandly titled sort of payment technologies team at currency cloud but that, that's what we see is we see these kind of businesses you know from medical care to kind of crm businesses to private that suddenly kind of they have an ability because there are companies out there that can abstract a lot of the 
expertise and sometimes I think deliberate opaqueness of finance yeah. away from them and say, focus on what you do really well and we'll take care of this bit. And I think that is just going to, you know, to use your phrase, Merlin, democratize a lot of this as well. And in your crystal ball, <laughs> to me, there's an open question around, you know, who's going to be the provider of those ancillary services? Is it going to be the CRM? Mm. Is it going to be the marketplace? You yeah. see lots of marketplaces um, actually bringing in logistics, financial services as a way to monetize, but also create like loyalty with their customer base. Is it going to be financial institutions that manage to productize and turn those services into, into APIs that are easy to integrate? I think the jury's still out on yeah, this. Agreed. Yeah, great. And so taking a bit of a step away from, yeah. from payments, I want to kind of talk a little bit about something that, that you mentioned right at the beginning. You are a French national. French. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but talk to me a little bit about, you know, Hakodo and kind of where you guys have landed in terms of French, British, European, you know, talk to me about what that looks like for you guys and, and how you've got to where you are. It's complicated. <laughs> so the, the, the founding team were one Belgian, one English, and one French. Is that the that sounds like the start of a joke? Did you all get to a together? Yeah. <laughs> they have one beer to many. Let's set up a company. Um, and we we decided to set it up in in London, so we're incorporated in in England. And the reason. I think being that there's a, in our industry, there's a massive hub around loads of London where all the specialty risks oh, are, yeah. are traded. And that's where you find the, you know, the expertise and, um, still, still today. There's that. And I think also it's fair to say that the venture capital market is more mature mm. in London. And you have more sophisticated investors that understand a bit better a pay, you know, we're a pay tech combined with a yeah, insure yeah. tech and then tech business, and and so you know when it's not a plain vanilla play, you probably have uh, you know a depth of market in in England that you don't find on the continent today. Interesting. And how do you find, you know, are there different views either side of the channel? How do you, I suppose, two questions wrapped into one here. How do you find it as a founder managing kind of a, an international team? You know, I know it's something that Current Club we're, we're super passionate about. And are there, you know, follow-up question, are there things, cultural challenges that you maybe face on a, on a daily basis? I think this is something that's, that's super interesting. So culturally, not, not so much, okay. because I, I think the... The people that we recruit, Daryl, I mean, we, we don't have a lot of uh, pro-Brexit yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, colleagues, I think. So they're all relatively uh, pretty uh, young, forward-looking, and international. They've traveled a lot. Um, so we've got French people based in London, Spanish yeah. people based in London, and so on. In terms of split, we're like three quarters in London mm -hmm. and uh, 15 people in, in France. So that's not not so much of a of a challenge, I would say. Plus, so we've been re kind of remote friendly from the yeah. start. I think it, do, it does create some operational and logistical complexities at the beginning. On the other hand, now that we're scaling up, it's actually making our lives much easier. Okay, interesting. So I think if you were a totally French business, 
for three years and you only have French speakers mm. and then you scale up and you want to internationalize into Germany and into England, then you're, you know, the hurdle is much bigger than start international. You can grow international rather yeah. than start local. You have a full localization process if you want to internationalize. But it's a bit of a hump yeah. and the source of complexity at the beginning. Interesting. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I'm conscious we're kind of we're kind of nearly at nearly at time. Love this conversation. I think it's super interesting. So, is there anything else kind of um, around Hakoda you'd like to share? Where can we find out a little bit more about you, about the team? I know that there will be people that will be frantically uh, googling you afterwards. Hopefully, so Hakoda.co is the uh, the obvious one. Uh, following us on social media, of course. Um, you can reach me also uh, through LinkedIn by email louis at hokodo.co. Um, next step for us is continuing the, the expansion across Europe. So we're going to be serving, we open one new country every, every quarter. So we're going to be expanding into Italy where we've got a fair bit of demand, Nordics, Poland. So that's coming, that's the, the agenda for us really with you know, one single objective to create the best payment method for B2B trade. Well, I think that's something to leave it, right? The best payment method for B2B trade. Perfect. Louis, thank you so much for your time and coming in today. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to another edition of the Payments Innovation Podcast. We hope to see you all soon. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.